Mark chapter 11, we're going to be continuing our study in verses 27 through 33. I'm entitling the message, The Servant's Authority. Mark 11, chapter 20, or see, there I go. Mark 11, verse 27. Let's read. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the temple for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither Will I tell you by what authority I do these things? Chapter 11 has gone from a celebration at the beginning of the chapter to the cleansing of the temple to the cursing of the fig tree. And now the chapter begins to focus on a conflict between verses 27 and 33 as the religious leaders begin to have a massive assault to discredit Jesus and to find any excuse to put him to death. And so the scene begins with a demand in verses 27 through 28. They ask Jesus by what authority he's driven out the money changers and the merchants. And then Jesus provides his defense. Where does authority come from? Does it come from heaven Or does it come from the earth? Does it come from God or does it come from man in verses 29 through 32? And then the religious leaders begin to realize that no matter how they answer, they're going to be caught in their own trap. What a dilemma. The dilemma turns to defeat as they give a deceitful answer. We don't know. The section gives us a peek into the problems of self-righteousness and wickedness and unbelief. It gives us a peek into what obstinate rejection, what obstinate unbelief will do in the hearts of individuals. In the counterculture of the 1960s, I grew up in a part of a generation that said, question authority. And it's still a reoccurring question in every generation. What gives anyone the right to do anything to anyone? Where does authority come from? How am I to explain where I go, what I do, how I conduct myself? And the fruit of that philosophy, by the way, produced a generation that gave itself permission to do what is right in their own eyes. And by the way... When you reject the authority of God and you reject the authority of Jesus and you reject the authority of the Bible, make no mistake about it. That doesn't mean that you reject all authority and every authority because then people become an authority unto themselves. 
You can tell every time a person says, I'm going to do what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do and you can't make me do anything. Which begs a question. Have you ever out loud or secretly said under your breath, I struggle with authority? Oh, there you are. Yeah, you just revealed who you are. Authority is a loaded, authority is a loaded, powerful word that generally paints a picture of control. Why do we struggle with authority? Hey, guess what? I think in moments of honesty, we all do. My heart still pounds when a police cruiser pulls up behind me and the lights go on. And I work with law enforcement. It wasn't too long ago I was at a Wednesday night Bible study. I'm leaving this parking lot. I'm turning right onto Ken Carl. And all of a sudden, a Jefferson County Sheriff's Cruiser, the lights go on and, the, and, and start flashing. And they pull me over. And the, the, sheriff, the officer approaches me and he says, Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, You suspect that I'm here illegally. That's what he did too. He laughed. And then he got his game face back on, his officer's face. And he goes, no, no, really, really. Do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, no, I really don't know why you pulled me over. He said, when you were exiting that parking lot, I saw you flick a cigarette out of your window. And I said, this is really, really interesting because guess what? I haven't smoked a cigarette since Jimmy Carter was the president of the United States. I go, but this is a brand new Toyota FJ. And if there's something wrong, if sparks are flying from my engine, I want, thank you for pulling me over. I go, you want to walk around the car with me to see if there's anything on fire? Because obviously if I really had been smoking... You, there would be some evidence. There would be some ashes. There would be the smell of smoke. And then I got right into his face and I went. Ah. <laughs> and the officer said, have a nice day. <laughs> In another time, Teddy Roosevelt warned about America's future. He said. Quote, the things that will destroy America are peace at any price, prosperity at any cost, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living and the getting rich quick theory of life, unquote. Without authority, families would be be unable to function. Without authority, churches would be unable to function. Without authority, communities would be unable to function. Without authority, nations would be unable to function. And authority can't be divorced from wisdom and compassion and, yes, love and justice. It was Anne Bradstreet, the famous Puritan poet, who wrote, quote, Authority without wisdom is like a heavy axe without an edge, fitter to bruise than to polish. And in Jesus' day, the political authority was unevenly divided between two groups of people, the Sanhedrin and the Roman government. And for the religious leaders, the great question wasn't whether or not they should be in charge. The great question that they faced was the legitimacy of the Roman government. 
And so there are questions of authority and legitimacy that take place everywhere. Religious systems appeal to authority. Every false religion has at least two common denominators. Number one, the false religion will preach a gospel of human achievement, a system of works that they will provide for you. And number two, every, every false religion by its very nature is offended by the exclusive claims of Jesus, by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's few things that annoy them more than when you say there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And so the religions of the world may have vast differences between them, but they unite in a special way. And that is opposition to the claims of Christ, opposition to the authority of God, opposition to the authority of the Bible. On Monday, Jesus cursed the fig tree for failing to produce fruit. He then cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers and the religious ripoffs, the thieves who had been merchandising the people of God. And the religious leaders were stunned. They were shocked. They were unwilling to mount the defense. Jesus came in like a hurricane and overthrew the tables. But now they've had time to catch their breath and think about it. Jesus has been walking through what we know to be the court of the Gentiles on the northern side. There is the stoa. This is part of the court of the Gentiles where the money changers were used to be conducting their 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 services. But now now Jesus is teaching in the temple and we know from Mark's gospel what he was teaching about. And the religious leaders want to know by what authority, but by what right does Jesus have to act in such a way? And so in this passage, Jesus is going to avoid the question, but he's not going to just simply avoid the question. He's going to expose their heart in the process. The religious leaders have no interest in the truth. All they want to do is to maintain their little kingdom and make it secure. And later, Jesus will deliver what's been called the parable of the wicked farmers or the parable of the vineyard owner. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Just walk with me into the temple and let's pick up on the conversation. Look at verse 27. Then they, that's the religion, then Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem. And as he's walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, And the elders come to him. Once again, Jesus and his disciples, they are in Jerusalem. Jesus joins the pilgrims in the temple, in the the court of the Gentiles. He's walking in the temple. What is he doing? What I referred to earlier. Matthew's gospel says that he's teaching. And Mark uses the definite article in our text. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Why is this important? Because they believe themselves to be the keepers of the temple, the custodians of religious orthodoxy. The the religious leaders believe themselves to be in charge. And so when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's in effect saying, I have jurisdiction here. The officials are incensed. They're enraged. Who does Jesus think he is? Does he have some sort of messianic complex? You know, it's not a psychological disorder if it's true. If you really did come from heaven, if you really are sent by God, 
Now, you have to understand something, and I want to remind you that normally these three groups are in constant conflict with one another. The chief priests are jealous of the scribes and elders for their ability to exercise control over people. The scribes pride themselves on being the smartest people in any given room. Their intellect is superior. They believe that they have answers to all of life's questions. And the elders never let either group forget the sacred traditions. Just like you and me. We have three enemies. That are constantly nagging us. The world. The flesh. The devil. But make no mistake about it. The world and the flesh and the devil. Will unite in their opposition to the plan of God. And the purpose of God for your life. And these three people. Unite. Only a common enemy could cause these warring factions. To put their differences aside. And that enemy was Jesus. And each group had their special reason for hating Jesus. And so what I'm going to say to you. Is probably going to come as a shock and a surprise. That those groups still exist don't they? There, it seems shocking. It, it, it seems surprising. Why would anyone hate Jesus? But remember, for these particular people, each had their own very special reason for hating Jesus. Jesus exposed the corruption and the perversion and the unethical financial dealings of the chief priests. Jesus embarrassed the scribes in public debate. Jesus repudiated the elders' positions on those who would elevate tradition above the the person of God and the word of God and the plan of God and the gospel of God. And so, they had lots of reasons. And so we begin with the question of authority. Look again in verse 28. It says, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, the religious leaders want to trap Jesus. This question isn't intended to seek the truth. This is a question of contempt. And by the way, questions often take that form. It isn't a serious inquiry in order to know the answer. The religious leaders are asking Jesus, and again, I want you to understand something. They're in the temple. This is a public setting. They're asking Jesus to produce his credentials. What is the nature of your authority? Who gave you the right to be here? Who sent you? Why are you here? When I left the FBI on Friday morning and went to the crime scene, I came to the first barricade where the Aurora Police Department had barricaded the entry. And so they said to me, who are you here with? And I said, the FBI. And they said, full-blooded Italian? No, that's not what they said. (laughs) Being full-blooded Italian isn't what's going to get me entrance past the barricade. I have to have some sort of credential. That allows me to get past. And so I have a credential that's signed by the director of of the FBI. This person is supposed to be in this particular place. But guess what? The fact that the Bureau has given me credentials, it doesn't mean that I can go places where I don't belong or I can't go places where I've never been sent. And so the religious leaders are asking him in public, 
Who gave you this authority? Who sent you? And on the surface, the question seems legitimate. After all, the Sanhedrin had a responsibility to request credentials from an itinerant rabbi. But they have to also appear to be fair and open so as not to arouse suspicion. And by the way, it probably has application for each and every one of us. Because can you imagine, it as, as crazy as this seems to even have to say it, can you imagine a church saying to Jesus, what gives you the right to interfere with our church service? What gives you the right to upset our tradition, our religion, our lives? But it is a big question, isn't it? Does Jesus have the right To interrupt our church, to interrupt our lives, to interrupt our family as he's trying to communicate with us by some specific way. Now, again, I want you to understand part of what's happening right here in the text. Remember, I'm fond of asking you to ask the text questions. Do the religious leaders at this moment understand that they're asking a question that has eternal consequences? Now think about it. Jesus, where did you come from? Who sent you? Why are you here? Do they understand that the answer to that question is going to determine whether or not they go to heaven or hell? When we were doing the announcements, I noticed it said, Baptism and barbecue, and I thought, maybe we should reverse that barbecue and baptism. Or maybe we should say baptism to put out the flames of the barbecue. But here's part of the point. Do they understand by what authority Jesus preaches his message? Do they understand his teaching? Do they understand that this is the person who calmed the storms? This is the person who foretold the future. This is the person who will die, who will fulfill prophecy, who will come back to life. But make no mistake about it. Whatever answer Jesus gives. Their commitment. Is to arrest him. There are two broad categories of authority, by the way, intrinsic authority and delegated authority. Intrinsic authority is the power that comes from nature. If you get hit by a bolt of lightning, you are pretty much going to die unless you somehow miraculously survive. If you walk on the surface of the sun, you're going to be obliterated. Even if you're a police officer, if you say stop in the name of the law, a three ton vehicle will kill you if you don't get out of its way. Because there are two broad categories, intrinsic authority and delegated authority, we have to understand which authority is being spoken of here. Delegated authority is the power that comes from some other authority. For instance, our Constitution empowers the president. Our Constitution empowers the Congress. Our Constitution empowers the judicial branch of government. So the judicial Judicial branch of government has power because of the Congress, the president, or excuse me, the judicial branch, the Congress and the president derived their power from the Constitution. Where does the Constitution get its power? 
from the people who have drawn up the Constitution. Here's what we've said as citizens. We are a free people and we insist on being free. We believe that the government should serve us and that we shouldn't serve the government. So here's what we believe as a free people. That as we go up the chain of command, that the government should submit to the Constitution. And who should the Constitution submit to? But now you've got the right answer. God. We hold these truths to be in it, that we have these inalienable rights that have been provided to us by a good God. It's God who has made us a free people. It is God who's given us the ability to choose or choose otherwise. It's God who has given us the right to speak and to associate with one another. It's God who does that. And we codify it in the Constitution. So the word translated authority here is exousia, which is the delegated power. We might even read into the text, by what delegated authority have you shown up? Who sent you? Who empowered you? Who gave you the right to do what it is that you're doing? We are under the authority of Christ. And we have all of his authority behind us. The usage of the word authority is instructive and inspiring. Exousius translated authority in John 5:27, right in Revelation 23:14, jurisdiction in Luke 23:7, liberty in 1 Corinthians 8:9, power in John chapter 10 verse 18. We all appeal to authority. And even Jesus will appeal to authority throughout his ministry. Who sent you? My father. Who gave you this authority? The person that you claim to be your God. Jesus claims to be the messianic king. He claimed to be both Lord and God in the temple. Earlier in Mark's gospel, remember what he said. This is my house. Do you understand what an amazing thing that is? Jesus claims to be the light of the world. He claims to be the path out of darkness. He claims to be the healer of the sick. And the religious leaders despise him and they want to destroy him. And so I I need you to understand what's happening. The religious leaders are gathering evidence. When I went to the crime scene, along with our evidence recovery team, they were processing the evidence where the shooter had left his gear and where he had left his car and where he had left the scene. And so with the evidence recovery team, they're beginning to process the team with a view that they're going to prosecute this person. And then they're going to get ready to go into that place and they're going to be, be, begin to process the scene. They're going to gather evidence. But in the process of gathering evidence, they are going to be subjected to horrific images that I need to prepare them for. What right did Jesus have to cleanse the temple? What right did Jesus have to call the temple his father's house? Jesus, remember, it says in Matthew seven twenty nine, taught as one having authority and not as the teachers of the law. In the opening chapter of Mark, chapter 1, verse 27, it says the people were amazed and they asked each other, what is this? Is this some sort of new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. This is pretty impressive credentials. 
Jesus made the statement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me in Matthew 28, 18. Can you imagine during this series of crisis, if the president of the United States comes on CNN or Fox News and he gets up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, my American, my fellow Americans, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And you go, do I turn this off? Do I throw up? What exactly am I supposed to do? If the governor of the state of Colorado came on and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Or even the chief of police comes on and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. The statement itself is an outrageous statement. Unless it's true. And Jesus has the prerogatives that only God has to forgive sins, to impart eternal life. Kurt Bruner wrote, quote, many refuse to accept the reality of a personal God because they're unwilling to submit to his authority. And that is a key concept, because if they even for a moment begin to ask and answer the legitimate question of where did Jesus come from and who sent him implied in that is the reality. Well, if he is who he says he is, if there really is a God and if this God really did make me and if there is a God who I'm going to be accountable before. then maybe I'm going to have to come to grips with what his expectations are. Because make no mistake about it, everyone submits to something and someone. You will submit to God. You will submit to Jesus. You will submit to the Bible or you won't. And if you choose to submit to something other than God, Jesus, and the Bible, who do you submit to? Yourself? Your will, your passions, your desires. Is that a safe source? Let me ask you a question. In, in your wildest dreams, do you think that the person who entered that theater and who is dressed up like a clown, but it is body armor, he enters the back door, he shoots a few rounds, and then he begins the systematic shooting of individuals within the theater, one a six-year-old child. And then he shoots them, and he shoots them, and he shoots them. Do you think even for a moment in his twisted, perverted thinking that he is thinking that this is a God-honoring, Christ-honoring, beautiful thing to do? Or do you think that he has given himself permission to do that which is unspeakable and unthinkable? And did it ever occur to you, even for even a moment, even for a moment, did it ever occur to you that each and every choice that you make boils down to the issue of who am I going to submit to and who am I going to subordinate my mind, my heart and my desires to? If you really, really want to know what a person is like, put them in charge. Make them be in charge. 
Because the moment that you put them in charge, you are going to be able to understand what's going on inside of their heart. And clearly, Jesus doesn't claim ordination by the chief priests. He doesn't claim academic standing with the scribes. Even though a reputable teacher in John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, We believe that you are a teacher sent by God because no one could do what you do unless he has those kinds of credentials. If Jesus claims authority for from God, they're going to challenge the claim. And if the religious leaders believe that they are God's appointed leaders for the people, they're going to discredit him if they say, I am self-serving and I'm on a mission by myself. Look what it says in verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I have a rabbi friend. I asked him, help me understand something. Why do Jewish people always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi said, what do you mean why do Jewish people always answer a question with a question? I go, that's what I mean. No, tell me what you mean. That's what I mean. The religious leaders have initiated the debate. They've defined the terms. They've advanced the charge. They've given Jesus the right of first response. And so Jesus says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? Answer me. By the way, Mark alone records the response of Jesus Answer me. And I want to draw your attention to that phrase. It's the Greek phrase, apo, krithete, moai. It's in the present tense imperative. It's as if he's saying, you need to tell me the answer. Now, it should shock you. It should surprise you. It should, should send chills up your spine. Because if for whatever reason you ever find yourself face to face with Jesus and Jesus asks you a question and then he says, answer me. What choice do you think you're going to have? You will have no choice. Because all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. All authority will be brought to bear. Edwards, in the authority of Jesus in the gospel, writes, quote, if the Sanhedrin wants to know whence Jesus received authority to do these things, it must reconsider John's baptism. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. If John's baptism were simply of human origin, then there may be something to the Sanhedrin's accusation. But if John's baptism was of God, as the crowds believed and as the Sanhedrin evidently feared, then Jesus's authority is the authority of God, unquote. And there's something again so sobering when Jesus says, answer me. The religious leaders know they cannot answer the question without total embarrassment. What an amazing thing. Jesus is risking his ministry and his life in part on the integrity of John the Baptist. What do I mean by that? What are my choices? Okay. Was John from God? Was the baptism of John from heaven? Another way of saying that is if John was from God, then Jesus is from God. Because what is the message of John? John? Remember, the message of John is turn from your sin. Turn to God. Prepare yourself. The Messiah is coming. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. If John is a liar or if John 
told the truth. One of those things is true. He was telling the truth or he was lying. And remember his message. Here's John's message. John 1, 29 and 34. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I bear record that this is the Son of God. What is his message? Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Remember that the Messiah is coming. What is his message? I am here to remind you that the Messiah is coming and the Messiah has a message of hope and love and redemption and reconciliation for you. And remember, he says, I am a witness. I am a voice. And in order to be a witness, you have to have three characteristics. You have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for telling the truth. And then you have to be willing to tell the truth. That's what, when the FBI was working with the associations of this killer yesterday, you're looking for, I need someone who is there, or I'm interviewing the witnesses. I need someone who has a knowledge of the truth, who can communicate that truth, and who's willing to tell the truth, and who has a reputation for honesty. And that's exactly the ministry of John the Baptist. So here's my choices. His ministry is a valuable ministry that was in fact from God. Here's my second choice. He was a mere man who invented his message or stole the message or plagiarized the message. But then we have something disturbing. How are we to explain the fruit of his ministry? How are we to explain the hundreds and thousands of people who turn from their sin and turn to God in humility and sackcloth and ashes, who change their lives, who change their associations, who change their relationships, who entered into a right relationship with God? How are we to explain that Jesus himself comes to John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, hey, you shouldn't be baptized. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And his response is, We're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then he goes into the water and he comes out and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How do you explain that? And this one question demonstrates the absurdity of sin and unbelief. The absurdity of sin and unbelief is how do you explain the life of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus? And we begin to understand something. It's not only unbelievers in the days of John and Jesus, but unbelievers in our own day. In Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 29, it says, And all the people that heard him, that is John the Baptist, and the publicans justified God being baptized of John. And they're in a public place. They're in the temple. There are literally hundreds and thousands of people who have gathered around as they listen to this interchange between the religious leaders and Jesus. And this is what's known as the horn of a dilemma. Because in verse 31, it says, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? By the way, I want to draw your attention to that word reasoned, because it's very interesting and very important. Look again in verse 31. Reasoned is the Greek word dialogizonto. It's imperfect tense. Why is this important? Because it implies that the debate wasn't instantaneous. It's reasoned. 
It's a reasoned debate. If you have an image of scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders getting in a huddle and go, okay, Moishi, you go first. Well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? Mordecai, what do you think? If he said, if he says from man, well, then what's going to happen is all the people are going to turn and they're going to rip us to pieces. Because everybody thinks that John the Baptist was a swell guy. That's not what's happening. They're going. They're talking. They're reasoning. They're arguing. They're debating. They're debating. The debate is raging in their heart. Why is this important to you? Why is this important to me? How long has the debate been taking place inside of your heart? How much time have you spent saying, I wonder if the Bible's true. I wonder if Jesus is Lord. I wonder if the stories in the Bible are true. I wonder if the message of, of the Bible is true. I wonder if the gospel's true. I wonder if all that has been written, that Paul has written about trusting him and loving him, of, of turning from my sin and, and, and believing that there is hope and grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if all of this is true. Right here in this text, at this time, we should be asking the religious leaders, why not believe? Why can't believing him be one of the options? Now, I want you to think about it. Do the religious leaders have access to all of the principles? Are, is, are they, do they have access? Can they talk to people who have been healed of blindness, of leprosy, some who have even come back to life? Is it possible that they could interview not just one, not just 10, not just 20, not just 50, not just 100 people? Are there literally hundreds of people that they can talk to and say, tell me what Jesus said to you. Tell me what Jesus did for you. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Mothers brought their children. Sinners came to him. Men loved him. Soldiers were charmed by him. In John 10, 18, Jesus declared to have authority to lay down his life. Authority to forgive sins in Matthew 9. Authority over demons in Mark 20, Mark 1, 27. Authority over sickness in Mark 3, 15. Authority to judge in John 5, 27. Authority over all men in John 17, 2. Authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 23, 18. What about his character? The New Testament describes him as holy in his nature in Luke 1.35, harmless in his actions in Acts 10.38, undefiled in his life in 1 John 3.5, separate in his service, John 17.19, meek in his spirit, Matthew 11.29, humble in his heart, Philippians 2.5, devout in purpose, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Look at him and look at who he is. Look at him and look at what he's done. And as they lay out their alternatives. The one alternative that all three of them agree to. Whatever else we're going to do, we can't believe him. Whatever differences we have and whatever else we think. We can't believe him. 
Verse 32, but if we say for men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. How will the multitude respond? What will people think? It's a fairly significant crowd. Everyone in the crowd knew that John was a faithful man. Everyone knew that he was an honest man. He was a blessed man. He had a reputation for honesty, a willingness to tell the truth and a story that said because he told the truth, the the local government executed him. So we can't say that his ministry was meaningless. And so in verse 33, they said, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They profess ignorance. Sometimes, sometimes a simple I don't know is a sign of honesty and humility. Sometimes people really don't know. But sometimes they do know. And they're using this as an excuse. The sad, tragic truth. They did know. But they were afraid to answer. The religious leader's inquiry isn't a sincere search for truth. It's a sinister plot to kill Jesus. Listen to him. We don't know. Deliberate denial. We don't know an expression of cowardice. We don't know expedience over principle. We don't know. Choose to play it safe rather than stand for the truth. We don't know. Choose to say, look, look, here's here's what we're going to do. Just say, I don't know. You know, in the United States of America, we have what's known as the Fifth Amendment. I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me. The words are ringing in my ears. I am not for people incriminating themselves. And I understand and even am grateful for the Fifth Amendment. Mark Cole in his book, Commentary, on this particular section writes, The root of the trouble lay not in their intellects, but in their stubborn wills. They stood self-condemned. The Lord's question, and this is the important part I want to get for you. The Lord's question wasn't a trap. It was an opportunity for them to realize and confess their blindness and ask for sight. Jesus isn't trying to trap them. Jesus isn't trying to manipulate them. Jesus is trying to give them an opportunity to confess their blindness or their ignorance or their emptiness. If ever there was a time, if ever there was a time to say, well, wait a minute, I think maybe I do know. Does it shock you? Does it come as a complete surprise to you that religious leaders are committed to avoiding God and avoiding the Jesus of the New Testament? Does it shock you that there are people who would rather do almost anything than face the claims of God or God's Messiah? George MacDonald wrote, No indulgence of passion destroys the spiritual nature so much as respectable selfishness. I don't know. I need to ask you a question. What happens to a person who refuses to face the truth? What happens to a person 
when they are given the truth and they are faced with the truth and they make the personal decision to walk in the other direction, in the direction of the lie, in the direction of the selfishness, in the direction of the rationalization, I'll tell you what will happen. You go deeper and deeper and deeper into the lie. And make no mistake about it, no choice is a choice. There is a certain amount of humiliation that takes place when you say, I was wrong. I was wrong about God and I was wrong about the Bible and I was wrong about Jesus and I was wrong about his sacrifice and I was wrong about his resurrection. It it seems to me that all of this stuff is true. Otherwise, you're going to be left with the respectable lie. The selfish lie. Peter Moore wrote, There's no smaller package that a person can have than to be all wrapped up in yourself. In his ironic fashion, Ambrose Bierce gave this definition of an egotist. A person who's more interested in himself than in me. The Greek philosopher Demosthenes was right when he said nothing is easier, nothing is easier Nothing is easier than self-deceit. For what a man wishes, that he also believes to be true. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What do the religious leaders wish? I wish Jesus was dead. They're going to get their wish. But it should cause you to ask a different question. What do you wish? What do you wish? What do you wish really? Do you wish that the Bible is true? Do you wish that the gospel is true? Do you wish that salvation by grace is true? Do you wish that just simply trusting Jesus and placing your confidence in Jesus and, 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 and your trust in who Jesus is, that that's true? What is it that you wish? What is it that you wish? And if, if what you wish is, I want to resist the authority of Jesus and I want to reject the authority of Jesus and I want to refuse the authority of Jesus... you wish. Oswald Chambers used to say, God nowhere tells us to give up things for the sake of giving them up. He tells us to give them up for the sake of the only thing that's worth having. Jesus himself. The reply of Jesus, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Isn't going to completely leave them off the hook. Because it's going to lead to a parable, a parable where the servant will address the cause of their guilt and the source of his authority. Stay tuned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. We know That this little encounter that Jesus has isn't for the purpose of people rejecting Jesus. Lord, we believe the words of the scripture when Jesus himself said that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that through him the world might be saved. That Jesus didn't show up to ruin my family and ruin my life and ruin my fun. 
But Jesus did show up so that my sin and my selfishness could be forgiven. And so that I could live in light instead of darkness. So that I could live in heaven instead of hell. And Lord, again, our prayers, our thoughts, our sympathies go out to our community, to the men and women and families who have suffered so much this week. But Lord, again, we pray. We pray that everyone would reconsider the authority of God, the authority of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, that we have every reason to believe that the Bible is true, that the promises are true, that the gospel is true, that hope is real. In Jesus' name, amen.